Let's read God's word, Revelation chapter 1, the first 11 verses. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The word of the Lord. And so it begins. I had a professor in seminary who compared reading Revelation to being in the wilderness. It's unfamiliar, it's disorienting, unpredictable, dangerous, it's hard to get your bearings. Since Revelation does not unfold chronologically and because the frame of reference keeps shifting from heaven to earth and back and forth, it can feel a little bit like dream logic. The action is powerful and vivid and memorable, but you're not quite sure what it all means or how all the pieces fit together. And so a thoughtful person might ask, why are we even bothering with this book? Wouldn't we be better off sticking with the parts of Scripture that are more familiar and accessible? On top of how strange it is, the book has been used and abused in so many ways, often to support theological and political convictions that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. G.K. Chesterton once quipped that John saw many strange monsters in his vision, but none so wild as one of his own commentators. There are at least five major schools of interpretation and countless perspectives within each. Many people avoid revelation because it feels like an interpretive minefield that we'll never be able to cross safely. 
And then there are the ways that Revelation has been portrayed and explained in popular culture that has made it just an object of ridicule and shame for plenty of people. Maybe you've encountered books or films like A Thief in the Night, The Rapture, Left Behind, which are based on speculative readings of Revelation. Often speculative readings promote escapism. Demonization of the other calls for violence. For all these reasons and more, many Christians have simply decided to just kind of let the the book of Revelation gather dust. Often even preachers avoid this book because they know that it's a playground for fanatics and they're afraid that if they start preaching on it, all the crazies will come out and their congregations will be mass chaos. I don't think that will happen here. So why are we bothering to explore this book? The simplest answer is because it's God's word. Because it's beautiful and true, because it has the power to convict and challenge, to liberate and renovate, to infuse our clouded vision and our tottering faith with clarity and courage. Familiarity can so easily dull our perceptions. Well, there is nothing familiar about Revelation. And so it is uniquely able to arrest our attention and evoke curiosity and wonder. So let's prepare for this journey. Let's pack our bags. Let's make sure we have a map so we can navigate this wilderness safely. This week and next will be our orientation to the book. Next week, um, we will familiarize ourselves with the character, the characters and the plot. This week, our focus will be on Revelation's literary form. Um, It's author, audience, and setting. And along the way, we're going to carve out time to ask plenty of questions. In your bulletin today, there's a a card. Um, If you have questions about Revelation, write them down. Um, After the service ends, there are going to be baskets in the the back, and you can just put your questions in that basket. If you don't have a question today, put your card in the basket anyway so we can reuse it as the fall unfolds. If you're tuning in online, there's a link in the video description uh, to a form where you can submit your, uh, your questions digitally. But at any point uh, during the series, you can pick up a card at the connections table or click the link in the weekly email to ask your question. We will read every single one. We will try to address a few uh, each Sunday. Uh, depending on how many come in, we may set aside additional times after the service to do question and response as well. All right, before we start packing our bags, let's pray. Father, uh, would you give us a hunger to know you through your word, a hunger so deep that we'll persevere through any wilderness to get there, to satisfy it. Give us understanding so that we can rest in you and trust in you and obey you. By your word and by your spirit, form us into a people who will be your faithful witnesses in this time, in this place. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to keep your eyes closed for an extra minute or two. And I want you to imagine that you are a follower of Jesus living in Asia Minor, in present-day Turkey, toward the end of the first century A.D. Though you live 2,000 miles from Rome, everywhere you go, Rome dominates the landscape. All of civic life. 
The Roman Empire is the greatest consolidation of wealth and power the world has ever known. Its army boasts a half a million soldiers. The Roman peace comes by way of intimidation and violence. If the state views you as a threat, they will kill you. And you are a follower of Jesus. And today, there are approximately 7,000 of you spread throughout an empire of about 60 million people. And only a tiny, tiny fraction of that 7,000 live in Asia Minor. From day one, followers of Jesus have been viewed as a threat, mostly because you refuse to bow your knee to the emperor. Persecution began under Nero not too long ago, but the current emperor, Domitian, is even less tolerant. In your community, your family, friends, and neighbors, people who've known you your whole life are applying more and more pressure on you to bow the knee, to conform to the ways of the empire. As a result, most of the people in your little house church have experienced some form of persecution or another, job loss, eviction, confiscation of property, loss of customers, loss of friends. You've heard stories about followers of Jesus who are in prison others who've been crucified or burned at the stake. When you first heard the gospel preached, you learned that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, had conquered sin, death, and the devil. And so why then is evil running amok? Why then is the world dominated and ruled by violent and bloodthirsty men? Why are Jesus' followers being persecuted and martyred? Where is Jesus in all of this? Why isn't he protecting his followers? If following Jesus gets you into this much trouble or could get you killed, is it worth it? You think about these things all the time. Okay, open your eyes. This is the setting of the book of Revelation. One of these persecuted Christians was a man named John. John was one of the original 12 apprentices that Jesus recruited. He was a faithful witness to Jesus, and because of that, he was arrested and exiled to the island of Patmos as a political dissident. While he was there, John received a vision, and that vision became the seed of this book. So what is this book? What, What kind of literature is it? That is a crucial question if we're going to understand it rightly. Uh, Before we answer that question, let's play a little game. I'll start reciting something. You tell me what genre it is, okay? Here we go. Once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. Sci-fi, right, okay. Preheat the oven to 400 degrees. It's a recipe, all right. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field. A parable, very good. Uh, Insert screw A into hole F. Instruction manual, all right. It began with the forging of the great rings. Lord of the Rings fantasy, very good, all right. We recognize these different types of literature, these genres. We recognize them instantly. They're familiar to us. We know exactly what to expect when we encounter them. And we usually know all of this in like five seconds. We know how they work, how they communicate. We know whether to take something literally or figuratively. Well, the Bible is a whole bunch of different genres. Remember, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library. 
It was written by dozens of people over a span of about 1,500 years. So if we want to understand and apply Scripture faithfully, we have to recognize what it is that we're reading. Now, Revelation is an outlier. It is not one, but it is three genres of Scripture. It is apocalypse, prophecy, and epistle, or a pastoral letter. You cannot begin to understand Revelation without understanding these three genres and how they work. So let's take them one at a time, and we'll start with the least familiar. What on earth is an apocalypse? Often we use the word apocalyptic to describe something that's extraordinarily horrible, right? Like an earthquake or the events of 9-11. But actually, apocalypse is just the Greek word for revelation. Something that is usually hidden suddenly is revealed. An apocalypse gives us heaven's perspective on our earthly situation. It gives us the view from behind God's curtain so that we can know what's really going on in the world beyond what we typically see, hear, and touch. It's an unveiling. It's a revealing. J.J. Collins offers this definition. Apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which, in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal and spatial. Let's break this down so it means something. Apocalypse has a narrative framework. It reads like a story. There's an unfolding drama. It's mediated. Look at verse 1 again. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what, what, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So if you're listening carefully, you're scoring at home. God the Father reveals something to Jesus, who reveals something to an angel, who reveals that message to John, who reveals it to the seven churches. So Revelation discloses a transcendent reality that is both temporal and spatial, meaning it helps us to understand our current moment, our current situation, against the backdrop of all of history. And it gives us a glimpse into a future world when heaven and earth become one. So an apocalypse reveals, it peels the curtain of history back so that we can see our situation in light of God's ultimate purposes and plans. Apocalyptic literature is a uniquely Jewish form of literature which arose out of persecution. It answers the questions, where is God when evil seems to be winning? Where is God when his people appear to be losing? And why should we bother being faithful to him when it brings scorn, abuse, and danger into our lives? Apocalypse assures the reader that despite all appearances, God still rules the world. And he will fulfill his good and just purposes. Apocalyptic literature is highly visual. It is jam-packed with images and symbols, some of them fantastical and larger than life. Therefore, it was never meant to be read literally. 
like science fiction or fantasy, it uses these larger-than-life images to draw the hearer into the story through our imaginations. Now, there are some Christians who believe very strongly that the Bible was meant to be read literally. When I encounter one of these, I say, well, Isaiah says we will soar on wings like eagles, so why don't you jump out of a plane without a parachute? No one's ever taken me up on that. No, the Bible was meant to be read rightly. If we took Jesus' parables literally, we'd all have to become farmers or shepherds or real estate speculators or jewelers to experience the kingdom of God. We don't. If we took the Psalms literally, we would conclude that God regularly abandons and forsakes his people. He doesn't. You gain nothing from reading Star Wars or Harry Potter literally. You can benefit greatly by reading them on their own terms, according to their own logic and rules. The genre is part of the message. The genre invites us to engage our imaginations in a particular way. Apocalypse uses images and symbols that are larger than life to show us what is really real beyond what we can see and touch. And in this way, Revelation has more in common with the Lord of the Rings than it does with, say, Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, you might be wondering where all these symbols and images come from, and all of them come from elsewhere in Scripture. In Revelation's 404 verses, there are at least 518 allusions to other parts of the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis 1. And these allusions are like hyperlinks, inviting us to reflect on these other places in the biblical story and to notice these recurrent themes and motifs and types that keep popping up. A great example of this is the portrayal of Satan as a dragon. Did you know that there are dragons all over the Bible? They're there. They're all over the place, from Genesis 1 all the way through, even though our English translations don't usually capture them. We'll talk about this more next week. But there be dragons in Scripture. Or when John refers to Babylon or Jezebel or the Son of Man or a series of plagues, he's drawing from a deep reservoir of images and types so that the reader understands that history repeats itself. And the challenges and the enemies that we face as followers of Jesus have been faced by God's people before. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project calls, the, calls these narrative design patterns. And they're all over the scriptures. Revelation is new Genesis. Revelation is the end times exodus of God's people. It is the fulfillment of prophecy. Some of the images and types that dominate this book, faithful witnesses, a kingdom of priests, the lamb that was slain, the lion of Judah, the son of man. These, these are woven all throughout scripture. John is creating nothing from scratch. He's using familiar ingredients to cook up a brand new meal. The scriptures are meditative literature. They're meant to be read over and over and over and over again so that after years and decades, we begin to see how these 66 books written by dozens of people over 1,500 years somehow coalesce into a single unified story that points to Jesus.
It is so cool. This is why Eugene Peterson says, you have no business reading the 66th book of the Bible if you haven't read the first 65. All that to say Revelation is not a code to be cracked. Even the most bizarre images and symbols that we might stumble upon would have been totally familiar to John's first readers. Which means our job is not to go looking for creative interpretations. Our job is to follow the hyperlinks and to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If you're new to Scripture, that's okay. Welcome to College Church. That's why we're gathered into a community so that we can chase down these hyperlinks together and see where they lead. We do far too much reading of Scripture alone. And my hope is that many of us will choose to read and study Revelation with others in community in the coming months and that that will become habit-forming for us. So Revelation is apocalypse. It is a deeply symbolic and fantastical genre that reveals heaven's secrets so that we can see our present situation circumstances against the backdrop of God's ultimate purposes and plans for creation. Now, one more thing about apocalypse, it was meant to be performed. It was meant to be read out loud dramatically in the context of worship, where hearers are invited into the divine drama of redemption in order to comfort and challenge us, but most of all, to sanctify our imaginations and transform how we see the world. So on Thursday, November 2nd, about halfway through our little journey through this book, we're going to gather and we're going to read, Jasmine uh, Myers Antonucci is going to read the entire book in one sitting in a dramatic way, and it's going to be great. It only takes about an hour. I can't wait. So Revelation is apocalypse. It's also two other genres, and I'll speed up here. Uh, It's prophecy and epistle. When we hear the word prophecy, we usually think prediction, right? The newspaper written in advance. But actually, prophecy in the Bible is always about the present. Rather than foretelling the future, prophecy is a forthtelling of God's will for his people in a particular time and place. So listen to verse 3 again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And then from the end of Revelation, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. So prophecy is fundamentally about the present. What is God doing now? What does God want his people to do now? Revelation is apocalypse, it's prophecy, and it's epistle. It is a letter from Pastor John to seven congregations. They're all listed in verse 11. These were real people in real places. John knew them. He knew their situation. He knew their hopes and their fears and temptations. And he wrote what he wrote with these people in mind. And this too has huge implications for how we read and interpret this book. It is a pastoral letter written to address specific churches in a specific situation which means we cannot possibly understand what Revelation means for us here and now without first taking the time to understand what it meant 
to John's seven churches back there and then. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. If we think we see barcodes and Apache helicopters in Revelation, we need to stop and ask ourselves, would Pastor John have really written about barcodes and Apache helicopters to his first century readers in Asia Minor? Probably not. Before we can begin to apply Revelation to our day, we need to do our very best to try to understand what it meant in John's day. It is a first century pastoral letter. It is not a commentary on your newsfeed in 2023. Revelation is God's word for us, but it is not John's word to us. Does that make sense? So Revelation is three genres. It's apocalypse, it's prophecy, it's epistle, it's all three. So who is this John guy? Well, as we mentioned, he's one of the original 12. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He wrote not only Revelation, but the Gospel of John and three other epistles that cracked the canon of the New Testament. But that's not how John introduces himself. John doesn't flaunt his resume. Instead, he says in verse 9, I, John your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. In other words, I am one of you. I am suffering too. I am learning how to persevere right along with you. John is not writing from an ivory tower. He is writing from the jagged shores of Patmos on which he has been exiled and separated from his family, friends, and churches. John is a persecuted sufferer. Eugene Peterson calls John a prophet, a poet, and a pastor. He's a prophet in that like Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, God gave him visions. Verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see. John is a prophet. He's a poet. Eugene Peterson says, if you don't read Revelation as a poem, it is incomprehensible. A poet uses words not to explain or describe something, but to create something. The word poem comes from the verb to create. A poet gets us to see something familiar in a whole new way, in a way that evokes wonder and that awakens us to truth and beauty in ways and degrees that we have never experienced before. If prose is a bag of M&M's, a poem is a lint chocolate truffle. Revelation doesn't so much inform us as it involves us. It engages our senses, our minds, our emotions, and our wills. John saw a vision, but before he wrote anything down, he reflected on what he saw. We said earlier that there are 518, at least, allusions to Scripture in Revelation. Amazingly enough, there are zero direct quotations. John keeps alluding to Scripture, but he never quotes it directly. What do we make of this? I think this is incredibly significant. Peterson says John is immersed in Scripture and submits himself to it, He does not merely repeat it. It is recreated in him. 
He does not quote scripture in order to prove something. Rather, he assimilates scripture into his being so that he becomes a new person. This is huge. Friends, don't miss this. I don't want to miss this. John doesn't just read scripture. He marinates in the scriptures. When you marinate something, the marinade gets inside of it and changes its flavors. John doesn't consume scripture. Scripture consumes John. His mind and his imagination are saturated with it. And as a result, John is transformed. Don't you want this? Don't you want this to happen to you? Some of us, you know, scripture is new to us and it's still electrifying. And every day we discover new things and we just can't get enough of it. And some of you are like, yeah, that's me. And for some of us, we've been reading it for a while, maybe decades And we've started to lose some of that wonder. And I don't know if that's familiarity breeding contempt or our reading has become shallow. And as a result, the experience has become stale. I don't know what your experience is. But unlike every other book that's ever been written, Scripture is alive. It's dynamic. It's penetrating. God's word wasn't given to us to make us smarter, but to make us alive, to transform us. And here's John. He's immersed in Scripture so much so that it is penetrating every fiber of his being so the Scripture is recreated in and through him. Friends, whether you've been reading the Bible for a week or 60 years, there are new depths still to plumb. And one of our hopes, one of our prayers this year is that we would fall in love with Scripture all over again or perhaps for the first time. And that there would be a deep hunger, a deep joy, a depth, and a delight as we engage more deeply with God through his word than ever before. And as we experience its truth and beauty and goodness and power, we would be transformed and renewed. Peterson writes, the intent of revelation is to put us on our knees before God in worship. And to set the salvation-shaping words of God in motion in our lives. We are always trying to use Scripture for our purposes. But Scripture uses us. God's gracious purpose in giving us his word in written form is not to turn us into Bible students. But to provide a means by which we can hear him speak and be turned into Little Christ, odd worshipers, sacrificing sufferers, faithful followers. John is a prophet. He is a poet. And he is a pastor. What he receives from God, he shares with his sheep. But he does not bypass himself. He internalizes God's message It gets deep inside of him and transforms him. And out of that personal transformation, he pastors his people. But he doesn't bypass himself. Lastly, most importantly, revelation is about Jesus. In fact, it is the testimony of Jesus. According to John, Jesus is the faithful witness He's the one who always speaks the truth. He is the firstborn from the dead, the one who passed through death to new life and blazed a trail for us to follow. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, the true sovereign, the true king of kings and lord of lords. John writes that Jesus loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. We were rescued by Jesus in order that we might represent Jesus to the nations. Verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people on earth will mourn because of him. He is our Savior and our Redeemer and our hope. He is coming to judge the world with justice and to make all things new. Revelation is about Jesus, the crucified rabbi from the sticks who defeated death and who reigns over every nation and all of history, who not only conquered the grave, but will one day conquer all our enemies. And he calls us to not only trust him and rest in him, but to conquer with him in his own nonviolent way and to show the world what he is like. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus crucified, risen, and reigning over all things. We want him to take center place in our imaginations. We want him to be the lens through which we see the world. We want to see him in his fullness, not as a caricature, not as something we can domesticate or carry around in our pockets, but as the glorious king who conquered death through his humble sacrifice and who will one day come in glory to establish justice and make all things new. So as we journey through this book, Father, open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see Jesus and love him and trust him and become like him. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.